Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 6th of April, 2016. I'm Simon Copland. I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about reparative therapy and questions around the idea of hate speech. This topic was sparked by an article that appeared in my Twitter feed called uh, Freedom to Change Your Life, Why, Why the Government Shouldn't Ban Reparative Therapy. Uh, it's written by someone who identifies themselves as having previously been an unhappy trans woman uh, who says that they were successfully, quote-unquote, treated uh, and are now living as a man. This person talks about moves to ban reparative therapy in parts of the United States, arguing that in a free world, anyone uh, should be able to go to this sort of therapy if they desire. I will put a link to it in the, uh, to the article in the show notes so you can have a look. Uh, there's a lot that I found really challenging with this article, but I think the most interesting part for me, and where I'd like to launch off today, is the way in which the author framed the debate. They were not, to be clear, saying that all homosexuality and transgenderism was a sin or anything like that. Instead, they argued that if LGBTIQ people advocates um, argue that people have the right to express their gender and sexuality however they want, then that should also include those who, does not, who decide that they do not want to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, etc., etc. The author argues that bans on therapy for young people can make sense, uh, but is not acceptable for adults. Uh, this opens up a lot of questions, in particular around the nature of sexual desire and gender identity, and whether we can, if we want, change these desires or identities. Um, and potentially building on from this, I think it opens up a discussion on the nature of harm for LGBTIQ people. Is the very existence of reparative therapy harmful for LGBTIQ people? Does that mean we should be, it should be banned, even if it does help some people? This, for me, connects to a lot of discussion we're having in Australia at the moment on the marriage equality debate and whether the existence of the debate itself is causing harm for queer kids. So uh, let's get started. I think there's a lot to cover. Ben, let's start off. Um, Should reparative therapy be banned? See, Simon, you warned me that you were going to ask me this question to start off, uh, which is good because I was a bit kind of terrified, um, particularly because the more that I thought about it, the more I was kind of surprised by my own opinions about it. <laughs> uh, I think in a lot of ways, this is a kind of logical extension of what 
we were talking about in the last episode and kind of like takes that into the real world a bit. It's kind of, you know, we finished talking about, um, you know, both of us, I guess, uh, came to some conclusion that it makes sense that it is at least theoretically possible to change the nature of kind of desire, whether we call that sexuality or, or sexual identity or not. It, it, it sort of makes sense that that's true. And both of us, I sort of, I guess, have described experiences of that. Uh, but this is like, it really kind of challenge. this is like challenging the theory with a really kind of concrete example. Mm. I feel pretty comfortable saying that I don't think it should be okay for kids. And, and the, the author of this article kind of doesn't, well, doesn't really express his opinions about, I guess, how, how he feels it should be, but certainly doesn't challenge the idea that, that of, of instances where it's banned for children. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, I, I kind of can't find a problem with it. I mean, I think depending on the circumstances under which people enter into these processes and there are, you definitely still hear stories of people being coerced into these kinds of reparative therapies. And despite the fact that the author of this article goes to great pains to say that the way the kind of shock therapy and really kind of extreme aversion therapy is not done anymore. The reading that I've done about this indicates that it is actually, it's maybe not as widespread um, and, and maybe a little more kind of underground, but it certainly does still happen. So, you know, it's a pretty safe thing to say. So getting the kind of safe parts of my opinions out of the way first, I think it's a pretty safe thing to say that I, I if people are co- coerced into it, I think that's bad. If it's like, techniques where it does kind of demonstrable harm both kind of physical and psychological i mean i don't think uh i don't think that's really a good thing either but when we're talking about i guess this therapy that is engaging in kind of cognitive behavioral therapy or like psychoanalysis as a technique for kind of changing sexuality i mean i can't if it's something that people really want I feel whether it works or not is maybe another question, and I think we're going to kind of get back to that. But um, I, I, I kind of can't justify being against it mm-hmm. if that's what people want to do. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think there's a whole range of different issues you sort of brought out there that I want to explore. Uh, and the, the one on harm, I think, is something that I really want to go into in depth. But let, going to that sort of original question I asked of whether we should ban it, and I've been thinking about this a bit too since I read the article and sort of challenging some of my views on this and thinking about how this all interacts. And I think I come to the same conclusion as you that although it's uncomfortable, the idea of banning this sort of... Um, what you said, cognitive therapy type stuff, this sort of therapy type approach that doesn't involve some of that electroshock treatment and those really harmful, those really, you know, painful things. You know, I, I struggle with the idea of banning it. And, and for a couple of reasons, like I want to say out loud and clearly uh, that I find these sorts of therapies really problematic and very difficult um, to deal with. And um, they have a, a long history of... Um, treating people extremely poorly and as you said you know there's a whole issue of people being coerced into them and that I do not approve of in any way shape or form and I think that's pretty you know obvious in a way like coercion into into any sort of medical treatment or any sort of you know therapy is not something we particularly want to do uh, and not something I would support 
But I think a look around the uh, the idea of um, banning these sorts of approaches that this author talks about um, in the question, uh, sort of in the way of what does it achieve? Like what does banning it achieve? And I guess to, to go back to that, I want to think about why it is that people have this desire to go go to these sorts of places. And some, you know, and I think this author says that there is some who would have a sort of just genuine desire to not want to be um, gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual, if even if they have some of those physical urges. And that, you know, I think it was really interesting that they framed it in the sense of a lot of the similar framing that, that queer groups frame their messaging around, you know, the right to express the sexuality however you want and that that mm. is your absolute right. I think there's a lot of that, but however, I think that probably from my perspective, a lot of those sorts of beliefs, um, you know, the desire to go to therapy is is underpinned with a sort of a, a society that, you know, is homophobic, transphobic, you know, does not, you know, creates spaces where people can't feel comfortable being those sorts of sexualities. But I don't think banning the therapy deals with that particular issue. I think, in fact, it would just send people further into an underground space where, you know, that sort of homophobia will continue to exist and people will continue to be unhappy um, and they just don't feel like they they feel like they've lost an avenue to create some sort of happiness for themselves. I don't think it deals with the underlying issues and I think it probably actually does some of the reverse and causes resentment and, and strengthens views on the opposite side, which I think is really difficult and problematic. Totally. I mean, I think kind of as a rule... If unless there's a really clear cut reason, and you know the idea of harm obviously is a complicated one, but unless there's a really kind of clear cut uh, reason to to ban something, I mean, I you know I I think you have to really be able to sort of justify it. Mm, mm. I think interestingly there are a lot of parallels here with drugs. Um, yep. Which have kind of even I've started thinking about just as we're talking about it, in that there's this kind of tension, these two different approaches to to dealing with drugs, the kind of probably, um, it's funny because the, the gap between uh, policy approaches and like what would be considered best practice within, for example, uh, the public health sector is like, there's a massive gap there. Mm -hmm. uh, in public pol in uh, public policy, what's often kind of done in politics is this kind of law and order approach. This default assumption is that drugs are bad. Um, they're ruining society. We need to, uh, we even if we understand that people are kind of quote unquote addicts, we need to, uh, the inherent, there are inherent harms to drugs that we need to get, so we need to get people away from them. The approach that's certainly much more common in, uh, well, essentially anyone who actually delivers um, drug and alcohol services, particularly in Australia, I think it's a bit more contentious in the US, uh, is a, a, a kind of harm reduction approach, you know, mm. an acknowledgement that most of the harms associated with drugs are not, don't actually come from the drugs themselves, they come from the way that um, drugs are marginalized and, and drug users are, are stigmatized. And so it kind of leaves you with this kind of conundrum where you go, okay, well, if that's the case, do we, like, obviously in an ideal, we, ideally we would live in a world where drugs are not stigmatized and, and drug use is kind of, um, the harms of drug use are not just exacerbated by or created by the kind of cultural circumstances or the, the view of the state, mm. but we don't, live, we don't live in that world. And so, you know, is it better to just kind of put people into rehab and try to get them out of it to avoid those harms? I feel like it's an interesting parallel because that's a debate that we can have pretty openly and, and we do kind of have those kinds of conversations. But as soon as you apply those same ideas to sexuality, you know, we just 
you know, you can't say that stuff. You can't um, have those same kinds of conversations. Like if a person, you know, I didn't grow up and I don't think you grew up in a, in a context where we experienced particularly severe kind of harms on the basis of our sexuality, well, certainly not as extreme as kind of lots of contexts in, in even in Australia mm. would be. But if you grow up in like, I don't know, a really, really conservative religious community or say like a really conservative, like an isolated rural community, like the, you can maybe make an argument that the harms associated with your expression as a kind of marginalized sexual identity, are they're so big that it's actually easier to just try to kind of change that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so. What I would, what I want to do, and I think this is just to to stir on the debate, is uh, to play the sort of devil's advocate to that position because I think it's a really interesting position you're pulling out. And I think the devil's advocate for that position in this this context, in the, the reparative therapy sort of context, is one that says, well, um, yes, that is true. That person may be suffering from social stigma um, and severe harms because of that. But the very existence of these sorts of institutions, these sorts of therapies, is the thing that is creating that harm. It's it's the thing that creates that, you know, that having people out there saying you can be cured, you know, it's all fine, you know, this is a disease or this is a, a sin or whatever, you know, you can be cured, your life can be better if you just, you know, are not that thing, you're not that sexuality, then, then so this is the thing that's creating the harm and therefore this is the thing we should ban. And I think that that is a challenging um, perspective because, you know, if we take away the sort of really harmful stuff of the, or the really difficult stuff around the electroshock therapy and, and all the stuff that's, you know, sort of proven medically problematic in terms of physical problem, problematic, what we're talking about here is a form of speech or a form of uh, engagement with a person in a, in, a, in a therapy kind of way. And is that sort of speech so harmful that it's worth getting rid of? You know, is that the case? Now, there's two questions there, whether this, you know, this therapy is the thing, is a thing that adds to social stigma or whether it's just the result of it, but also whether that, that the harm of that is worth banning if we, you know, if you accept clause one, is the harm of it worth banning anyway? And I think those are two different issues that we could play out that builds on sort of what you're talking about there. Hmm. I mean, and obviously that's all wrapped up as well in whether or not these therapies actually work. Mm. Um, you know, because I was kind of thinking about this and and thinking about, like, what is the basis on which we would ban any kind of anything that describes itself as a therapy? And I just was immediately thinking about, I mean, people go to acupuncturists, people yep. go to homeopaths, you know, and there's no, the only, there's evidence that shows that there is, um placebo a kind of placebo benefit to those things but there's no like scientific benefit like uh, scientific evidence that there's an actual clinical benefit to those things beyond those placebo effects which are real of course mm. um and so you know obviously this is attached to a kind of wider social harm but i think even those comparisons point to i think whether or not it works not being uh, a good enough justification as to whether or not it should be allowed to exist yeah, absolutely, and and like we could go down that rabbit hole of questioning whether um, or not these work, and that leads to into a whole question about you know, and one that we've touched on in podcasts before, you know, whether on the nature versus nurture debate around around sexuality and gender identification, and whether it's you know whether we're born this way or whether it's something that we can change. Um, I think that we can go down that rabbit hole, but I agree with your analysis that whether or not it works doesn't 
matter in terms of the question of whether it should be banned or not. Uh, and, you know, and, and in reality, there are, you know, and we might want to challenge these ideas, but there are stories of people who say, look, I went to these things, and this is, this is an article of someone who is saying that I went to one of these things, and it worked for me. There are people who say I went to one of these things, it didn't work at all, it was totally screwed up, you know, there's no way I would do that again, or, you know, I was forced into it, and that is really bad. Um, but for some people, it did work. And so the question is whether the harm to the greater community is, is worth, you know, those people's, you know, feelings that it worked for them. Um, and, and, yeah, this we keep sort of circling around this question of harm. And I guess what a, what a question is, do you think that there is a broader social harm for the existence of, of with the existence of these sort of reparative therapy uh, centers or ideas and then does is that, does that harm to a community if it exists um, advert you know mean that we should be considering getting rid of it get, you know trying to ban them sure I mean I think I, I would struggle to uh, pick apart or kind of separate out I guess a difference between whether these things are kind of part of I feel like it's I would put these into the same question, I guess, whether or not they're sort of part of, um, whether they've just kind of grown out of a harmful culture or whether they represent a kind of harmful culture in themselves. I feel mm -hmm. like that's a bit of a sort of chicken and egg yep, thing. Yep. They, I mean, they clearly have been and are kind of embedded in aspects of our culture that I think are um, have an interest in, I guess, causing... Oh God, I don't even know if I can stand by that. I was going to say <laughs> causing harm to like LGBTI people um, and queer people, but at this uh, part of the reason I'm kind of struggling here is because I feel like a lot of this goes to the question of like what constitutes a community, which is something that we've kind of touched on as well. One of a kind of fundamental principle that I think I I, I have around um, you know a lot of my politics is is this idea and and you and I have talked about this before. I'm not sure if we've talked about it on the podcast. This idea of like self determination mm. that it's important for communities to be able to have some control over uh, what they are and what they look like and what they believe and that sort of thing. And that in fact imposing beliefs on a community can potentially do more harm than the effect of those beliefs on kind of adjacent communities. So when we talk about does the existence of these reparative therapies, or I guess like you could say more broadly the existence of uh, it's usually fundamentalist Christian communities. I'm not sure if, whether there are like secular programs for this stuff, but does the existence of those communities and what they say, and I guess this leads into to the kind of hate speech stuff, what impact can we say that that realistically has on, you know, if those people say are like living in, I don't know, just to pick a random spot, like some random suburb in Sydney, like what impact can we say that their existence, their very existence has on like queer people in Melbourne or even in another part of Sydney? Like where does, there's that great line about like harm that says, it's, it's not even about harm, I think it's like from some famous like American historical figure that I can't remember right now, but you know, you're right to swing your fist ends where the other person's face begins. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, like, can we point to relationships of harm between the existence of these things or these communities even and queer people who, say, don't even live in these communities? Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think, I mean, that is the, the 
a huge challenge of the the creation of the link between speech effectively in many ways uh, and the existence of these sorts of centres uh, and, and and physical harm for communities. And there, there is research that suggests, you know, that living in a, and this, you know, this makes logical sense, that living in a, in a society in which you are not accepted and people are making hateful speech about you all the time um, can lead to physical harm, you know, mental health issues, uh, levels, you know, higher levels of suicide sure. and that sort of brought out in, in, in the research about queer communities in particular, which, you know, shows that that's the case. Um, but how do you draw the links between particular individual circumstances and those things? I do not know. And then how do you deal with those circumstances? I do not know. And I think this links back to something that I wanted to talk about a little bit more, and it sort of comes back to Australia, and it's sort of tangentially linked in a way, um, and that's sort of um, the the debate we've seen about um, same-sex marriage that sort of is intensifying every day here. Um, and a lot of people now pulling out, you know, there's been a proposal for a plebiscite or a vote on the issue, and a lot of people pulling out research saying, well, um, the debate that is going to occur here around that, it's going to create a lot of hate speech, and that is going to create harm for people, for young people, so therefore we shouldn't have this vote. And, you know, the vote itself is going to create this this, this debate um, and this harmful debate that's going to help hurt young, young queer kids in particular. And I've been frustrated by that sort of analysis because I think it's sort of, I think in a way, what, what the way I look at it is that these sorts of things are a natural, a natural, natural you know, it's, it's not a desirable, but it is a, an outcome of a social movement that is growing and the visibility of communities who are challenging a status quo. Uh, and the sort of idea that what we won't do is that, that what we'll do is we'll just ban that speech and ban that debate or try and silence that debate. And I think that this sort of banning reparative therapy is, is an extreme example of that sort of, um, that what that does is sort of yields the floor and means and stops us from growing stronger. And what, what I'd rather see us do is challenge the notion of these things rather than trying to ban them. You know, challenge the notion of this of this the speech, you know, fight back against it rather than going trying to get the state involved to say, hey, stop it, you know, stop them because they're hurting us. Um, and I think that there are parallels with that with other social movements, which, you know, you could say there's, you know, for example, that the growth of the women's movement or the growth of uh, the civil rights movement has led to backlash against those communities. And sure. I think um, that things like reparative therapy are, are an example of a backlash against a queer community, um, an attempt to sort of erase us. Uh, and what you don't do is say, you know, shield away and go, let's 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 back away or let's, you know, just try and get rid of that voice without challenging the very notions of them. Um, what you do is you fight back. Uh, and I think that that is a stronger message here than spending time you know, trying to get the state involved to ban a, ban a therapy or ban a debate or have a civilised debate, whatever that means. Yes. I mean, I think there's kind of a lot of stuff wrapped up in this. Um, mm. I think I think there are reasons. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too kind of bogged down in discussion about the politics of the plebiscite because I feel yeah, like it, it'll end yeah. up being a bit of a, um, a red herring. Uh, I think there are reasons we shouldn't be having the plebiscite beyond the potential harms of the speech around it yeah absolutely and and that's something that we can discuss maybe at a different time and we don't need to do that yeah for sure i, I think, I think it's a bit of a kind of off topic this particular argument that i think was what i found interesting yeah for sure i i feel like a lot of this is why i so so two things uh the reason i was talking about um community and the kind of nature of community before which is something we've touched on before as well 
And I, I think it's a kind of interesting thing and an important thing to talk about here is that when I think about my politics around self-determination and, and the importance of being able to kind of control what happens in your own community, that is in some ways a kind of naive, almost like, you know, platonic uh, way of thinking about that stuff in that realistically we live in a very globalised uh, society we have access to speech and access to messages from like all over the world realistically mm-hmm. um and so you know what it, it's an interesting and challenging and i think a bit kind of scary question uh about uh what does the right to self-determination look like when the argument can be made that we all sort of exist in one global community to some degree and I don't, you know, I don't really know how to answer that. I guess the the kind of second, the second thing I would say is that part of the problem I think that often happens, and you could say this about both sides of a debate around um, something like marriage equality, something about something like reparative therapy, is that you get in any kind of big public debate like this, the voices that are the loudest are not really representative of many people other than themselves. And I think we kind of um, lie to ourselves a bit sometimes in queer communities and say that, you know, we are representative of the will of the people, but the Mm. kind of conservative Christians are not. And I think, in fact, kind of neither of us are. Probably, I I don't know, having said that, you probably could make an argument that the the kinds of people driving uh, a discussion about having reparative therapy or, or an opposition to something like the safe schools program, which has been a big thing that's been talked about in Australia recently, are more of a minority, but there's kind of so much, it's hard to talk about this stuff without thinking about the kind of power and the money that's wrapped up in what, um, it's not like this is a level playing field. It's not like any debate around this stuff and any kind of public conversation that we can point to harms associated with is a kind of, uh, I mean, fair is kind of a shit word to use in this context, but you know, it's not. It, it's all it's all distorted. The kind of the the voices and and how loud different people are shouting is all going to be a bit distorted. So I think mm. that to say that the discussion about having a kind of public debate where we defend our ideas and we kind of attack that sort of assumes, I think, a a level of equal access to that debate that simply doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things I've been thinking about. Like, I, I yeah, I'm, I agree. I mean, obviously, there's you know, in terms of the the access to a level debate, I completely agree. Um, in that, and I think you know, reparative therapy is a good example of this. In that, you have people who, who often don't have um, access to the safe communities that may provide them an, an avenue that is not reparative therapy. Um, for example, um, they don't have access to the queer communities and the, the debate in that, and so reparative therapy ends up being the only option in many ways. But then I think that also links into your question about community, and I think this is something that is challenging about this particular article to, to link back into it, um, in that the the author challenges the idea of community or, or, or of self-determination within a community in the way that they say that, you know, 
effectively they you know they do, they never say anything like you know homosexuality is a sin or transgenderism is a sin or any or it's bad or it's inherently bad what they're saying is that people should have the right to decide that they don't want to be part of that and they might want to be part of a community that is more conservative the community that they've grown up in the community that they feel part of and that their sexuality or how mm. they sometimes feel in their sexuality or sometimes how they feel in their gender is a challenge to that and that this is a solution to that problem. And so it's this interesting idea of self-determination and this interesting idea of community that really challenges a lot of the notions of queer um, language and communities, which talks about self-determination and communities being so important, but says, you know, in this particular instance, you know, no, you're born this way, you know, that this is who you are. Um, this is your community, this shut is, up. Yeah, yeah, this is your community. You should be part of our community, not the community you've grown up in, effectively. Oh, I love, I love yeah. that. It just makes me think of, I'm just like sitting here smiling because I'm, you know, it's, it's just part of the seriousness of the topic. Um, <laughs> it just reminds me of this, like, I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but this, like, interview I did uh, for the Star Observer when I was a journalist there with a... Um, uh, fairly well-known Australian kind of celebrity doctor. She was head of the Australian Medical Association um, named Karen Phelps. Yep. And I, I was writing this series about um, uh, coming out. It was kind of coming out stories. And I interviewed her and, and when I called her, her partner happened to be there in the room with her, Jackie Stricker, I think is her name. And so the interview ended up being with both of them. And I sort of we sort of talked a lot about the, the their coming out story, and they were sort of outed in the media. And then, you know, towards the end, I sort of asked them, I, I, I guess, a bit more kind of philosophically about the nature of coming out, the kind of po politics of coming out. And uh, Karen's partner just went on this like massive rant that really incensed me, and I was kind of the whole thing kind of made me really angry. And I'm sort of just sitting there <laughs> trying trying not to say anything where she said basically that everybody has a responsibility to come out. If you don't come out, you are actively harming all other queer people by not helping make the world a more accepting place for mm. all queer people. Mm. And I said to her, but I mean, what if you come from like a cultural background, for example, where it, it's hard? I mean, where you risk kind of losing your family if you do that. I mean, that, that just seems like, an impossible choice. No one, you, you can't ask someone to choose between their family and a bunch of people who they're connected to through their sexual identity. And she just said, no, nah, I don't care. You know, no, doesn't matter of you. doesn't matter about your circumstances. You just have to do it. And I just kind of left the thing just going, Oh my God, like I, I, I can't believe that you've actually said this, but I think that there is that kind of idea out there in queer communities that somehow, uh, and it goes back to kind of what we were talking about last time about the the essentialization of sexuality, that we see sexuality as so core, as kind of almost the, the bedrock of who we are in some ways. Whereas, I mean, I don't know, I think family is pretty bloody important for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I, the way that you framed uh, reparative therapy as perhaps for a lot of people offering a way for them to stay within their communities they're perhaps like familial communities i mean how like that's not a choice you know i mean that's that's not a choice anyone should should have to make or could make and and you really can forgive people forgive even that's a kind of really judgy word um <laughs> people people either either is valid either is a valid choice yeah yeah and i think you know to i was just thinking when you were saying that sort of stuff it's a really interesting almost 
contradiction, I think, within queer communities and within sort of identity politics as we see it today, and that we have this messaging around the idea that being queer is about being who you are and having the capacity to be whoever you want to be, and that is, you know, and that we should all celebrate who we want to be, and, you know, that should be, that's really great. But then you have this essentialization, essentialization in which we say, you're born this way, this is who you are, you know, it is biologically determined, um, you have no choice in the matter. And so you have this contradiction that occurs in which, is, you know, we're celebrating, you know, be whoever you want to be, but whoever you want to be is already determined for you before you have any choice over the matter. Uh, mm. And then, and, and this is where reparative therapy is so challenging in that, you know, in this particular instance in particular, um, what you've got is someone saying, who I want to be is, you know, and for this author, who I wanted to be was not a transgendered woman, you know, and and that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go away from that and, you know, I wanted to not be that person and that was my self-determination. That was me being who I want to be and me entering into this community that I wanted to be in or, you know, staying in a community that I wanted to be in. And a lot of um, queer people would find, you know, people find that very challenging because there's an essentialized nation, sort of essentialized nature to to this whole debate that says, well, no, obviously that person, the person who wrote this, is actually a transgender woman. They're just sort of denying their their self, even though that self is something that we should be able to choose and and you know celebrate whatever it is. Well, I mean, I feel like you're in some ways giving too much credit to queer communities to uh, <laughs> around that kind of like. I feel like the message is not be who you want to be, it's be who you are. Yeah, be who you are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is the kind of fundamental um, distinction here. I feel like if, if we were actually saying be who you want to be, this would be less of an issue. Yeah, 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 probably right, I think. And, and I think that that is, the, that is the issue and that is the challenge that this sort of stuff really brings out. Um, and I think that's why this this article, even even though I think it has some problems, is one that's worth reading and thinking about. Mm. Okay, should we end it there? Uh, yep, let's wrap it up. That's uh, that's it for us today. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks, which you can find on queers.podomatic.com. Uh, you can also head to the iTunes store and subscribe from there. Just search for Queers. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch me at Simon Copland on Twitter. I'm at Ben C. Riley. And thanks, and we'll see you all next time.